If not, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm number 33. The songbook of the Bible, page 33 of Scripture's songbook, Psalm number 33. A couple of months back now, I preached about the reality of a God who knows everything. And in that sermon, I made the point that if God knows everything, then it means He must see you. And He does. God sees you. But knowing that God sees you should lead to another question. And that is, what does God see when He sees me? What does God see when He sees me? What does God see when He looks at you? What does God see when He looks at the whole world? What does God see when He looks at the church? These are all good questions for us to consider. My aim today is not necessarily that we would consider them individually. Maybe we'll do that at some future date. But instead, my aim is to declare to you for the truth just what it is that God is looking for and expecting when He looks at you. Knowing that, then, you can determine the answers to those questions of what God sees when He looks at you. I want to tell you something before we get to the text today. How it was that I was praying, considering, and thinking about this, I was privileged to spend four hours in the back seat of a car without air conditioning for the first time in a long time earlier this week. And I had a notebook and a pad of paper, and so I started jotting down some things that were on my mind that I wanted to record and make note of. And one of those things that I jotted down was what I see when I see Faith Church. And as I got to consider that reality and start considering that thought, my my mind immediately went from what does it matter what I see when I see Faith Church, but what does God see when He sees us? What does God see when He sees us here at Faith Church? Well, if what we're looking to understand is how He sees us as Faith Church, we should first understand what He sees when He sees us individually. And so I had to deal with that question of what does God see when He sees me? And to get there, it requires a right understanding of what God is expecting to see. If you have children, there are things that you expect to see out of your children, and you discipline them, and you nurture them, and you admonish them, and raise them to resemble those things, to reflect those things that you are desiring to see in them. My children, when they do things that are not the right things that they should be doing, I correct them and I point them towards the things that they should be doing that they might rightly reflect the character that their mother and I are trying to instill in them. So does God. God has a character that He expects and desires to be manifested in His people. God has a character that He desires to be reflected by His children. Just as it is that the moon has no light of its own but reflects the light of the sun, so are we to reflect the character of God. Simply said, and I guess I'll just go ahead and jump to the very end of the sermon, we can just call it quits, God expects to see Himself in you. God expects to see Himself in you. In fact, I believe it's over in the book of Malachi, and I could be wrong on exactly what it is. One of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, as my mind's trying to reach back through the cobwebs here to, to brush this off, we read about the refiner's fire. 
We read about the fuller's soap. And the prophet there is giving us some description of how God works with His people, that He would create in us a clean heart. And if you do some studying about that fuller's soap, the launderer's soap, about how Old Testament, how they would get a garment clean, and what they would use to do that, it wasn't pleasant to be around, it was uh, odorous, and it wouldn't have been something that any of us would be using in our laundry machines at home, or washing machines at home. But what they would do is they would take those things, and they would begin to, scrub vigorously to clean a garment until it was spotless. That is what God is doing in the hearts of His people. A refiner, meanwhile, will take a piece of silver and they would put it in the fire and they would see it begin to melt and they would pull it out and they would begin to remove the impurities, remove the dross, and they would keep going through that process. And when they knew that that silver was pure and free from impurities and free from all that dross, is that they would pull it out and they would see themselves reflected in the silver. God desires to see Himself in you. What does God see when He sees you? Again, my aim is not to answer that question. My aim instead is to answer what He expects to see, and then you can answer on your own whether or not He sees that. Read with me Psalm number 33. We're going to read the whole psalm. We're going to get to the aspect that we want to deal with today as we do, but it's a precious psalm, 22 verses here in this song, and I think it's good for us to consider all of it. Psalm number 33 begins as, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto Him with a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto Him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all His works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of Him. For He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices. He makes the plans of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom He hath chosen for His own inheritance. Verse 13, The Lord looketh from heaven, He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of His habitation, He looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike and considers all their works. He is, excuse me, there is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him upon them that hope in His mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in Thee. 
And that ends the 33rd Psalm. That's a good song. That's the kind of song that I'd want to listen to. He begins with a, a call to praise. To praise ye the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord. And he says that praise is comely for the upright. The true child of God is most beautiful when they are worshiping and praising the Lord. Did you hear that? You are never more beautiful to God than when it is that you are praising Him and uplifting Him in worship. Praise is comely for the upright. It is beautiful. It is becoming of the Christian. It is an expected feature of the Christian to worship God. You are expected to worship the Lord. It is a right behavior. It is beautiful unto God for you to worship the Lord. How do we worship the Lord? He talks about praising the Lord with a harp and singing to Him with a psaltery and an instrument of ten, ten strings. He says, sing unto Him a new song and play skillfully with a loud noise. Play skillfully. We are instructed not merely to worship the Lord, but to worship the Lord well. That we would put forth not just some haphazard effort at what we are doing and lifting our voices to the Lord, but that our hearts would sing out in praise in such a way that we desire to do it better. You getting this? That we would not merely be content to go through and say, well, you know, I'm never going to be a good singer. Try harder. (laughs) Try to make it an effort that you might be effective in the worship of the Lord. Some of us, you're like me, and you're just resigned to the fact that you can't carry a tune in a bucket. But that doesn't stop me from trying. (laughs) Y'all hear me and you say, that's not very beautiful. God hears me and He say, that is beautiful. When my child worships me. We are to worship God and, and be play skillfully with a loud noise. It says, for the word of the Lord is right. Why are we to worship God? Because the word of the Lord is right and all His works are done in truth. We worship the Lord because we understand and we know and we see in Him that His Word is good and righteous and holy and that all that He has and desires to do is that it is filled with truth and there is a faith that can be called out to us through His Word. I ask you today, what is the substance of your faith? What comprises your faith? How do you know that you have faith in God? Is it merely that you have trusted once and because you trusted once and God saved you and you're counting that for your continued faithfulness? Or are you continuing to trust, continuing to increase in your trust by growth in His Word, by growth in prayer, by the the, the source of your faith giving to you a greater in deeper level of trust. Do you know why it is? What compels me to continue to hold fast to my faith in God? It is that the source of my faith provides to me an ever-growing desire to trust Him more. What is that source of my faith? It is God Himself. Isn't that incredible? The object of my faith is also the source of my faith. 
I grow in grace. I grow in knowledge of the truth. Not by merely some uh, instinct of mine or some uh, desire of mine or some natural born instinct that I would have or intention that I would have. But instead, the source of my faith draws me and calls me to a deeper trust in Him. Is that what the disciples asked for? They saw the works of the Lord. They saw the miracles of Christ. And they came to themselves and they said, Oh Lord, increase our faith. They were trusting in Him and asking Him at the same time to trust Him more. Are you depending upon the Lord in faith? Seeking not only that He is who you have faith in, but He is also the One who provides to you that measure of faith. That's one of those mysteries of God. But I want you to know that we can grow in that trust and knowledge of the Lord. Keeps going, he says, that he loves righteousness and he loves judgment. He loves justice. A character that God desires to see in his people is that we love righteousness and we love justice. That when we see sin, we abhor it. We grow weary when we look around and we see not just the sin around us, but when we see sin in ourselves. When we see sin in our own life, it distresses us. It concerns us. And we begin to abhor it so much so that we're left as Paul was, where he began to just abhor the reality of his flesh so much so that he was left to cry out and say, Oh, wretched man that I am. He was asking, Who can deliver me from this body of this death? He was wondering and desiring and seeking that God would provide to him some greater ability of righteousness because his love for righteousness meant that he hated his body of sin. Do you love righteousness? Do you love justice? Many of us, we can look and we can understand when we see something that's being done, we'll cry out and we'll say, that is injustice. It's not right that that person's being treated that this way or it's not fair that this is happening to this person. And it is good. And, and I think there's even a bit of a human instinct and morality to look at that and understand when there is some injustice that is happening. We see it in our culture all the time. All these calls against injustice. But I ask you a different question. When there is something that you can gain by something that would be of an unfair weight, something that would be of an unfair scale, of an unfair justice, do you deplore it then the same way you deplore it when you see it outside of how you can benefit? What am I getting at? You're at the store. Somebody's giving you your change back. And they give you an extra five. You don't notice it till you get home. How do you respond? There's an injustice done. You have taken more from that store than you were supposed to. How does your heart look to those things? If you're a lover of justice like God is, your mind just can't sit until you take that $5 back to them. Won't work. (laughs) Was it the game? Was it that game called Life? Remember that? Where there used to be something and, and, you know, banking error in your favor, gain $200 or something like that. The Christian should have a problem with that. I want to know exactly how this happened. Because I, I deplore injustice and I love justice and I only want things done if they are right and if they are good and if they are fair. I don't want something done if it is that I am taking from it more than I should. You see the difference? God desires that He would see in us a love for righteousness 
and a love for justice. He keeps going and he says, by the word of the Lord, excuse me, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth and in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The psalmist now calls our praise and calls our attention to the world around us. And he says to look to the heavens. He says that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. That the host of them, the stars of the heavens, were created by the breath of His mouth. Here's a good exercise for you. Tonight or the next time you're outside and you happen to notice the stars and you look up and you see the stars around you, you can't even begin to to count a, a, a small part of them. You can't count the half of them. They are too innumerable to count. And as you stand there in all at the heavens, know this, that the creation account in the book of Genesis, I believe it's in the sixth verse, if I'm not mistaken, it says this concerning how God created the stars. It it says in five words, He created the stars also. We stand in awe at the heavens. We stand mesmerized about how the stars are too innumerable for us to even begin to count. And we have been blessed as we've grown in, in society and we have all this technology and we can understand how far away those stars are and how that light takes so long to reach us. And all that is recorded in this. He created the stars also. God breathed and the stars were. Isn't that incredible? That's our God. Talks about the oceans. Says that he heaps, he gathers together the water of the sea as a heap. In the depths, he lays up in storehouses. It's as though the oceans to God are nothing but a water bottle in his pantry. I want you to think for a minute. If you look at society over the last, I guess, 15, 20 years, I, we hear all this worry about global warming and how the polar ice caps are melting and sea waters are rising and all of this stuff. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, I assume it's true. I, I assume the people that study those things are smarter than I am and they figured all this out and about how quickly the sea waters are going to rise and all this kind of stuff. But God is the one who controls exactly how much water is in the sea and exactly where that water can goes, can go. He's the one who outlined the continents. He's the one who has shaped the beaches. Not only so, He knows exactly how many grains of sand are on those beaches. Maybe it's going to be that the waters will rise and people will have to leave the cities, but it is underneath the watchful eye of God if those things will be so. The waters were heaped together by Him. They are in His storehouse. And He will control how far they go. And it will reach a point where He will say they go no further. The ocean stops right here. Here begins dry land. All the world looks in worry concerning the situations that we cannot control. And God looks to them and He controls them by His words. He speaks and it's so. 
Verse 9 says, For He speak and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. If we were to just record from each life that's represented in this room today, the things that you're going through, and you're just to list the, the number one concern that each of you have. And we are to fill up a, a piece of paper up here, fill up some slide and show or some screen. We put them up there and we looked at all of those concerns. And we brought in the smartest minds in the world to come together and to try to determine how it is that we can, can work in those concerns and see to it that only good things are accomplished. I want you to know we would be here for a million years trying to figure out how to work through each of the individual concerns just of this group of people in this room right now. Yet God Himself can look at all of them and He knows specifically what is concerning you before you even ask. And He knows the condition and the state of your heart and how it's affecting you and how it's impacting you. And He knows the impact on your faith and how you're growing weary and how you're so tired and you're wondering what, if anything, can be done. God sees that and He understands that. We're going to see in a minute that He understands it and He knows it and it's underneath His purview and God still has the capability to speak and to command and it will be done. So what does God look for in us then? He is looking that we would place our faith and our trust and our confidence in Him rather than in ourselves. The very middle verse of the Bible says this, that it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. I think a lot of times we look at that and we'll say, yeah, we know that. We should trust in the Lord rather than put confidence in, in somebody else. No, no, no. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in anybody. That includes you. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence even in yourself. You might say, Derek, I'm able to handle this on my own. I'm able to go through this fire on my own. I'm able to to withstand this storm on my own. You might be... You're probably stronger than I am. And you're probably more able than I am. But I know this about myself is I'm not strong enough and I'm not able to walk through the fire to withstand the storm without God helping me. And we're going to see in a minute that nobody is. So right now, if you think that you are, just keep that thought in the back of your mind because we're going to see in a moment what God has to say about it. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. It says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of Him. We're going to come back to that here in just a moment as well. It says, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. God nullifies the counsel of the heathen. He brings it to naught. He nullifies it. It is null and void. All the wisdom that man has, absent of the wisdom that God will provide, He nullifies it. It says He makes the plans of the people of none effect. You ever heard that, that saying, if you want to hear God laugh, tell Him your plans? You've probably heard that saying before. That's biblical. <laughs> He makes the plans of the people of none effect. 
God is who is in control. And He is kind of like what we'll see as, as I would be shepherding my children as they begin to walk. And I would be walking with them. They'd be learning to walk and banging into everything. And I'd find myself just walking behind them. As Lila was learning to walk, as Maverick was learning to walk, even still with Ellie, they walk and they bang their heads into stuff. And, you know, poor little Ellie last night, she turned around and walked straight into a chair. I hate to see her happen. As a parent, if I'm nearby, what I'll do is I'll see it starting to happen and I just put my hand out between her head and that chair and I just direct it a little away. Can't you just see God doing that with us? Son, I know your plans are to go this direction, but you're going to hit that wall head on. So I'm just going to put my hand here and I'm just going to direct you back the other way. <laughs> I'm so thankful He's a loving Father. Says that he makes the plans of the people of none effect. He bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He nullifies it. But the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. So that the wisdom of the Lord, his counsel, it endures, it stands forever, and the thoughts of his heart are to all generations. Now I want you to take in mind what this means in reality concerning where we're at today, right now. We're here on August 29th, 2021. And we see what's going on in our society and in our country. And I read things and I hear things and it talks about the end of the American Empire and whether or not our country will continue to be the country that enjoys the liberties that we have and is the greatest country on earth and all of these things. And what I know is that I have no idea if those things will continue to be so or not. We could be invaded tomorrow and fold up like a, uh, like a chair. <clears throat> And if God would will it, it would be so. And because our greatest generals, our greatest military leaders, God can bring their counsel to naught. He can nullify their wisdom at His discretion. But even if that was to be so, that the freedoms that we enjoy, this country that has been a blessing for so long was to, to end I want you to know that the counsel of God stands forever. And not only so, but the thoughts of His heart are to all generations. You see, when I think about these things, and I consider the reality of, of where we're at in, in, in this moment, in 2021, on the span of history, I begin to think about it, and I don't get too worried about myself, but I do get worried about my children. I say, what kind of country are they going to grow up in? What are they going to be exposed to? What's going to be the reality of life when they reach adulthood? What do I need to equip them with and teach them that they might be able to stand when those days would come? And it's a frightening thing to have to deal with that. But I am comforted knowing this, that the thoughts of God's heart are to all generations. The courses of human history can change. They can change 180 degrees from where they are at right now. Yet God will be the same evermore. I believe it was S.M. Lockridge who said this. He says, The hinges of human history have swung upon the strength of the insignificant man who has linked his life with the Lordship of Christ. What do you mean when he said that? He says that the reality of what takes place in the course of history is dependent upon the one who puts his faith, 
who links his life with the Lordship of Christ. You have worries here about what's going on in Afghanistan. You have worries here about what's going on with, with immigrants, with, with people coming in, with all these political worries and turmoils and all these things that are going on. Trust in the Lord. When your heart gets so burdened, when your heart gets so filled with worry, when your mind won't stop racing about the things that you don't understand, go to the Lord. Desire counsel from the Lord. Desire wisdom from the Lord. Desire strength from the Lord. Ask Him to increase your faith, knowing that when your faith is increased, your heart begins to be stilled. Why? Because suddenly you have all things and you know all things? No. But because your trust in the One who does know all things has increased. I'm trusting the One who sees everything. He is looking down on all this madness. (laughs) All of it is happening underneath His watchful eye and underneath His purview. And as a result of that, I can sleep at night. May God help us when our hearts grow so filled with worry that it seems like we just can't quite know what to do and we're just filled with so much anxiety and stress and turmoil that our trust in Him would grow that He would quiet our hearts. It says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the, is the Lord and the people whom He hath chosen for His inheritance. Here we get into it, verse 13. It says, The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of His habitation, He looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. When God wakes up in the morning, He looks out His window And he has the luxury of seeing every view in the world. And instead, he opens it up and he sees you. Now, I need to correct a couple of things that I said that weren't quite right. God has no need to go to sleep. (laughs) He doesn't wake up in the morning. He's awake all the time. So instead, he's just looking out his window. And he could have chosen every view and vista that the world would have to offer. After all, he created all of it. And he sees you. Isn't that incredible? We go places. We take vacations to go to the beach and we want a room with a view. I want a room where I can sit and I can watch the ocean. We go to the mountains and we want to find us a place with a view. I want a place where I can sit outside and enjoy nature and stare at the mountains. God has all of that underneath His watchful eye and He looks at you. Isn't that incredible? Oh, how awesome our God is that He would look on me. It is necessary then that we deal with this question, what does God see when He looks at us? And the psalmist goes on and he raises this question dealing with the reality that I was talking about earlier about whether or not we can withstand things on our own. Whether or not we can withstand the storm, whether or not we can walk through the fire. Listen to what he says here as we look in verse 16. He says, there is no king that is saved by the multitude of a host. Let me put that in a little bit of language that's easier for us to understand. He says, there is no king that is saved by an army. No matter how great an army is, that king is only king so long as God allows him to be king. It is not the army that protects and allows the king to reign. It is that God allows it. 
He keeps going and He says that a mighty man is not delivered by much strength. No matter how strong you are, no matter how able you are, no matter how much you can lift, no matter how quick you can run, it is not your strength, it is not your might that allows you to stand. It is God that allows it. keeps going, He says, A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. He says, no matter how great the chariots, no matter how great the war horses, they are not sufficient to save. To put it in 2021 terms, it doesn't matter how great the tank, it doesn't matter how great the weapons and the the armaments of modern warfare, the ships, the airplanes, all those things, they are not enough to deliver. Instead, what does he say? He says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear Him. And we get to the first point here in Psalm 33 of which God is after when He looks at us. Is that we fear Him. Now you've probably heard that before, that we are to fear the Lord. You may have even been taught as a child to fear the Lord. And a lot of times we think about that word fear and we struggle to deal with it. And we say, are we supposed to be afraid of God? And, and we know that word really means that we're to have a reverence, a, a supreme respect for God. And that that fear, that being afraid is to be dealt with in, in that way. That we would have a reverence for God. And you say, well, yes, of, of course, I, I have a reverence for God. I know that He is God of all the earth, and I respect Him as God, and I acknowledge Him as God, and that may be well true in your life. But are you living a life that reflects your fear of the Lord? Or is your life compacted by, and restricted by, and apprehended by the reality that God is the Lord? Is He master over your life? Have you truly given him lordship after all he has purchased you god has paid for you with the price of the blood of his own son you've been bought with the price that's why we call him lord because he is owner i ask you are you reverencing the lord do you live in fear of god keep in mind the basis of this question is that there is no king that can stand no matter how great his army. There is no man that can stand no matter how great his strength. There is not a nation that can stand no matter how great their war horses and chariots and weapons of warfare today. Do you live in fear of God? What have we learned in this psalm? That God speaks and it is. That He commands and it is made to appear. What he has, all, what he authorizes are those things that are done. He speaks and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I ask you, do you live in fear of God? Knowing that He sees your sins, knowing that He sees the reality of the thoughts of your life, knows the reality of your faith, knows the reality of how you are living and depending on Him from day to day. Do you live in fear of God? Does your heart get in trouble? Does your conscience not allow you to do the things that the rest of the world would do because you fear God? I may have told this story before. I have a real soft conscience. 
It doesn't let me get by with very much. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> it's, it's served me well. But sometimes that conscience would get so hot, it would cause me to, to lie. Because there would be things that I'd want to see done, that I'd want to see happen. One time my mom had a bunch of babysitting kids and we had a lawnmower in the garage and best we can tell, apparently one of those kids got onto that, got into that lawnmower and messed it up and it wouldn't start anymore. We were supposed to go to Chuck E. Cheese that Friday and my mom said unless whoever messed with the lawnmower fesses up, we're not going to be able to go to Chuck E. Cheese. And so it seemed like a really easy equation for me to solve. Somebody fesses up, we get to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Mom, I did it. I did it. I, I didn't do it, but I, I said I did it. I mean, Chuck E. Cheese is on the line. Absolutely. Let's go to Chuck E. Cheese. I did it. And so we did. And that just weighed over my mind for years. Two or three years later, we're sitting down and we're eating dinner. And the reality of that lie that I told would not let me rest. I said, Mom, Dad, I lied to you. You know, I said it was me that broke the lawnmower. It wasn't. Why? I just want to go to Chuck E. Cheese. So I lied to you. You see, I had a fear about the reality of my conscience. And I couldn't hold fast to my lie. Even though it was easier, they would have never known the difference. They fixed the lawnmower, everything was fine. They were mowing grass, everything was good. But I couldn't, couldn't live with that. Why? Because I was the one that had to sleep at night. You see, integrity... Being honest, being upstanding, being upright, loving righteousness, loving justice are those things that reflect our fear of the Lord. We know that God sees the things that even man can't. He looks not merely upon our outward acts. Listen to me. I have a good deal of the reality of your walk with the Lord because I can examine how you live. I'm not going to tell you what I think about you. <laughs> but I have a good deal about the reality of your walk with the Lord by watching how you live. But what I cannot see is the intentions of your heart. But what does the book of Samuel teach us when God was looking for a king and He looked through all the king or all the men there and He was looking and He was looking and He was looking at the, all the people who were saying, well, how about this man? How about this man? They were looking on the outward man. What does Scripture tell us? God looks on the heart. You see, I can look at your life. You can examine your life outwardly and you say, you know what? That's pretty good. Most people will look at me and they would say he's a Christian. Christian. Most people will look at me and say that she is someone who loves the Lord. But God sees your heart. What does God see? Does He see a heart that fears Him? Does he see a heart that reverences him? Does he see a heart who won't go where the crowd's going, even though it'd be easier to fit in with all those people, but you can't because you know the things that they are going to go and do break God's heart? Listen, if God loves righteousness and if God loves justice, he hates sin. And the Christian cannot long do the things that God hates. You might find yourself, well, you know, I've, I've done them a lot. One of two things is true. Either you're not really saved, or there's coming a time where God's judgment is going to be held fast over you and you're going to fall underneath His chastising hand. 
And you may not fear Him, but I fear for you if that would be the case. You say, well, Derek, that's just an awful thing to say. Oh, no, my friend. There is not a greater love that a father has than to chastise his children. My children are very sensitive. I don't have to so much as begin to raise an eyebrow at them and they just fall apart. Ellie this morning was pulling on a curtain and she was about ready to just rip that thing out of the wall and if I hadn't stopped her, I reckon she would have. And I said, Ellie, don't do that. And she steps away and she's looking at me like I just, I just scolded her something fierce. In reality, I just don't want to have to deal with the curtains off the wall <laughs> or her getting hurt. <laughs> she needed the chastisement of her father to know that what she was doing was not going to be good. I need the chastisement of God when time to time I find myself sliding into the things and they get real comfortable, they get real natural. And before long, even your conscience becomes seared that you're able to do those things without the worry of guilt weighing on your mind. Young people, listen to me, especially at your age. I know that you are being pulled in all sorts of directions by the world. And listen to me, Satan is just right there behind you. The world's pulling you and he's right there pushing you. You can get the places that the world wants you to go real fast. You can get there faster than you even want to go. But I want to warn you. You might say, Derek, there's something there that that seems appealing to me. And it's going to seem appealing to you. Sin is pleasurable for a season. You're going to say, well, Derek, you know, they seem to be able to get along all right and do okay over there. They might be able to do that, but they don't have the same father that you do. You see, there were some things that my friends were able to do that I wasn't because they didn't have my mom and dad. They wouldn't let me do those things. They had different rules for my life. They had different things that I was allowed to do and wasn't allowed to do, and I'm glad that they did. And there's some things that I get to do, and there's some things I don't get to do because of who my Heavenly Father is. (laughs) Oh, He has made me to sit in more wonderful places than this world's ever experienced. I am more privileged as a child of God than the President of the United States is. I have feasted more than the people who eat at the finest steakhouses that the world has to offer. I have experienced life in greater ways than the people who stand at the pinnacles of the highest mountains. I have tasted of the Lord's grace. I have known of His mercy. I have experienced His life-giving power. I know Him. I have seen His miracles performed. I am convinced that I have stood in the presence of His angels. I know God and I fear Him and I reverence Him and I am convinced that what I am following after as I follow after the Lord it is right and it is good and it is far better than anything the world has to offer. And as a result of that then, I am compelled, yes, I am constrained by my love for God, by my desire to increase in my faith and knowledge of Him that I cannot do the things that He hates. I can't do them. He's grabbed a hold of me. And He won't let me go. Isn't that incredible? What a God we serve. To have such a love as to treat me as His own. Didn't you hear what He said? Listen to what He said. He said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people that He has chosen for His own inheritance. 
I am an inheritor, a co-inheritor. Jesus Christ is an inheritor with me. I'm a co-inheritor of all that God possesses. Do you know what all God possesses? Everything. (laughs) My Father owns it all. I am His inheritor. (laughs) He is going to reward me with the crown of eternal life. (laughs) Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. How blessed are we to be called His children. God sees you as His little child. Does He see a little child who lives a life that reflects the reverence and respect and honor that they have for their parents? He says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear Him and upon them that hope in His mercy. That hope in His mercy. I ask you about your hope. Do you have a hope for His mercy? Do you have a hope for His loving kindness that is present with His people? What do we mean by that? What is mercy? If grace is where you get what you don't deserve, mercy is where you don't get what you do deserve. You see, as a loving parent, we have a chart at our house that has a list of infractions. It's things that our kids do that they're not supposed to do. And then next to that chart, you go across and you see the different punishments for the things that they are not supposed to do. And if they do one of those things, they go up and they can see the punishments that we've outlined for them. I've got a problem. They do something wrong. They go up to the chart. They see what they did, what was wrong. They see the punishments for it. And then I have a hard time following through. (laughs) You know why? Because I'm a loving father. They've disobeyed me and they've disappointed me. And they would be right to receive punishment. But as a loving father, sometimes I don't give them what they deserve. I show my loving kindness to them. I show my mercy to them. I say, you know what? I see what you did wrong. And there's a punishment associated with it. And maybe you're still going to get this punishment. But you know what? Let me put my arm around you. Let me walk with you for a while and show you why that was wrong and and what bad thing can be done. Here's why it's so awful for you to lie. Because if you lie in a little thing, you're going to lie in big things. And if you lie in big things, no one's ever going to be able to trust you or depend upon you. And you're going to lose confidence and lose faith and lose friends. Listen to me, it's better for you to understand the truth. That's why these things are necessary. God is a loving Father who is filled with mercy. And there are times where it is that I know I have failed Him and I know I have disappointed Him and I have sinned against Him and I've disobeyed and I've dishonored Him in His cause and His kingdom. And sometimes it's as though God just comes upon me and He puts my hand on His hand on my back and He says, I know that you know that you've disappointed me, but I love you anyway. 
And my hope is fixed in that mercy. That yes, He has saved me, but He has saved me, as Brother Nick likes to say oftentimes, He saved me not only for the sins that I had committed in the past, but He has saved me knowing the sins I would commit in the future as well. And He saved me anyway, and He loves me anyway, and His mercy is present in my life, and my hope is instilled, and it is rooted in that mercy. It's dependent upon it. It's trusting in it. These are the things that God desires to see when He looks upon His children. Why are all these things so? Wrapping up, He says to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in fame. And why is God's eye upon you? Is it just merely that He can make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing? See, just like that big brother eye, you know, you see over a cash register to make sure nobody's stealing from the cash register. Is that all God's doing? Is that all His purpose is? No. God's eye is upon you not only that He might know your fear for Him and know of your hope in His mercy, but His eye is upon you to deliver your soul from death. His eye is upon you to keep you alive in famine. God's eye is fixed upon those that are His because He desires to see to it that when we find ourselves in distress, when we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves stuck between the proverbial rock and the proverbial hard place, that He is there to deliver us. When we find ourselves in times of famine and in hunger, that He is there to feed us. When we find ourselves with no clothing to wear, that He will clothe us we find ourselves with nowhere to lay our head, that He will provide for us shelter. God is, has His eyes fixed upon His people because He loves us and He is there to deliver us and feed us and help us. <laughs> he looks upon you because He loves you. So what is the psalmist's reason then? He says, Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him because we have trusted in His holy name. Listen to how he wraps up in verse 22. He says, Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. The psalmist ends with an appeal to the Lord for His mercy to continue to endure. The Old Testament writer says, Great is the faithfulness of God for His mercies are new every morning. Every morning you wake up, and you do wake up because you do need rest, and you open your window, and you look out to the views that God has given you to view, whether that's your next-door neighbor. If God's given you a window to view your next-door neighbor, you love your neighbor as yourself. If you open your window and you see your family, you see your children, you see your loved ones, your grandchildren, love your family. If God's given you something else that you look out your window and you view, you use it for His honor and for His glory. But know this, that each day when you wake up and you look out your window, God is looking at you. And the fact that you get to look out your window is because His mercy continues on your life. And He sees your hope in that mercy. I want to close with this. Peter recorded that the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. God sees everything. But His eye of love is fixed upon His people. And it is against those who do evil. So we have two layers of protection. 
Not only is our God who is stronger than any man, who is greater than any king, who is mightier than any army, not only does He have His eye on us to deliver us, but He is opposed to those who would oppose us. And so our mercy has rightly found, our hope rather, has rightly found mercy. I thank you for listening to me today. I pray that you go home and you weigh that question. Sit down with a pen and pad of paper. Just take half hour. Go off somewhere by yourself. Write this at the top of your piece of paper. Write, what does God see when He looks at me? Just start writing down what comes to mind. What you think God sees. Be honest with yourself too. Only you and God will see that paper. You can't lie to Him anyway. But consider, what does God see? The good, the bad, and the ugly. And then ask God to help you that you might be filled with fear in Him and that your hope might be rightly rooted in His mercy.